Would you join me in prayer now as we ask God's blessing on our time in his word? Father, I give praise to you for the journey in Uganda that was so special for me, that really grabbed my heart and helped me to uh, delight in these things even more. And I pray today, Lord, that we would see our Savior Jesus even more beautifully and clearly as we look at him from a survey level throughout the Word of God. We pray that you would help us now. Lead us on in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to preach a sermon that's extremely different than a normal sermon that I preach. I I tend to be an expositor. I like to start with a verse at the beginning of a book and just move through and dig it out verse by verse. But there are times where it's helpful to step back or to to climb to 60,000 feet above the Scripture and say, okay, what do we see from up here? If we were to survey the entire Old Testament, for example, what storyline could we spot and see unfolding before our eyes? And so I want to share with you what I've titled uh, this message is, Jesus is Greater. Jesus is Greater. And there are many passages I'm drawing upon. In fact, so many, there's no way I could put them in a PowerPoint. Uh, So I have a handout that is four pages for you, and it is just loaded with Scripture, and you get it at the end, because if I gave it to you right now, you'd be reading it and you wouldn't be hearing me, okay? So you get it at the end, and here's the thing. For note-takers today, hang in there. This is going to drive you nuts, okay? There is no way you're going to get all these references. Don't even try. I've got them in a handout on the back. Now, there's, I think, one, two, three, four, five. There's six fill-in-the-blanks for you to feel like you accomplished something in the notes. Okay. Jesus is greater. Luke 24, 27 is where we're going to end up. But before we get to that verse, I want to give you some of the story of how it unfolded with my time with these pastors in Uganda. I have the conviction based upon the Scripture that all of Scripture is important for the believer. Every verse counts. Every page, every word matters. In fact, 11 years ago when I candidated at this church, that's exactly the sermon I gave. This was my text. All Scripture, all of it, is breathed out or inspired by God. And it's profitable It's beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, look at those words. That is an assignment to the preacher. That is an assignment to the teacher. And that is an an assignment to every believer. When we come to the Word of God, we are to be taught by it. We are to be reproved by it. We are to be corrected, as in turned this direction from this direction, and we are to be trained up in it. Why? Why? It's in righteousness that this works, that the man and woman of God may be competent. The word here is teleos in the Greek. It's a complete or um, perfect is, is the, the, the most literal translation of this, but we don't mean perfect as in sinless, We mean perfect as in equipped, competent. Equipped for every good work. Every good work. In Ephesians 1, we read that there are good works that God has preordained for you to perform as 
one who carries his name, and the way that you are equipped for this, these, these good works to shine bright is by having your nose in this book. All of it, all of this book, is what prepares you to walk in the good works that God has predestined for you to do. So, is it important? Yes, it is. All Scripture. If we do not preach and teach and study and read and delight in and and understand, seek to grow in all of Scripture, then we will be left incomplete and unequipped for the work that we're called to as believers. Now, it's an interesting thing. I got to know a handful of these pastors years ago when I spent time with them at a conference I did there on the attributes of God. And I remember gathering up, we, we taught all the staff. There was a, a whole you know, building filled with people and many pastors came in from the villages. And I remember pulling them aside and just saying, guys, how are you doing? What's hard for you guys out here? What do you struggle with? Um, where in the scriptures do you feel like you're ill-equipped? What would be beneficial if I were to come back and do some teaching What would be helpful for me to focus on? And I learned so much just hearing their struggles. In Uganda, the prosperity gospel has ravaged that nation. In fact, it is hard to find a church that has an unadjusted gospel, a true, pure gospel. Instead of turning it into a a tool for making money or for promising blessing and riches and health and wealth, It's a big problem down there. They all know all of these names. I went through the list with them. Have you guys heard of Joel Osteen? Oh, yes, we know him. Have you heard of Joyce Meyer? Oh, yes, we know her. Have you heard of Benny Hinn? Oh, we have heard Benny Hinn. And on down the line. Todd White and on and on and on and on. The gospel has been so riddled with heresy and twistings and, and, and issues that, that faithful preachers are hard to find in Uganda. Because in poverty, if the promise is wealth, it has the same effect of the lottery system in our nation. Those who play it most usually can afford it the least. It preys upon the poor. And prosperity preachers fly in their private jets and get rich while the people who are suffering the most claw for hope. It's satanic. And I stand against it with everything I am. And so I went to work talking with my friend Keith there who helps train these pastors, and I said, man, let's do some stuff. Let's, let's work. Let, what can I do? Let me know. How can I help? I want to help these pastors. And so last year when we went as a family, I spent the entire time with them just on the focus of all of Scripture, how to preach expositionally. What does it look like to be a faithful preacher of the Word of God, all of the Word of God? And here's what I found. Most of these pastors had never preached from the Old Testament. They said, oh, Pastor Jeremy, it's it's too hard. There's too many stories. It's too confusing. We have no resources They have no commentaries. They have no, you know, faith life, no logos, computer programs. 
um, all of the training in seminary and Bible school I take ad- advantage of, they have no access to these things. And so as a result, the Old Testament has basically been forgotten there. And all the glory that is to be seen in those pages. The problem is, is the preachers who preach the Old Testament tend to be prosperity preachers because they love to say, well, see those promises to, uh, to Abraham about being rich and all these things? That's your promise. And they do violence to the text from the Old Testament. So a lot of them just say, it's not worth it. We don't want to go there. And after coming home last year with my family, I said, oh, we got to go there. And so I came back this mission trip with the team, and my entire focus was, was to help equip them to preach Christ from the Old Testament. How do you find the gospel as you work your way through the Old Testament? And that's what we did. We spent the entire week doing that. I taught for a number of days, and then they began to practice it, and they would do presentations and little sermons, and we would uh, critique and encourage. Uh, this worked really well. This, no, that's prosperity gospel. We got, we got to stay away from that, and it was so good. I feel such a bond with these guys. Courageous men who are not shrinking back from the gospel. The Old and New Testament matter. They matter in your life. It's it's frustrating sometimes that we even call it the Old Testament. I think even subliminally we're we're thinking, well, it's archaic. It's uh, outdated. It's irrelevant, right? It's old. Oh, friends, don't think that. You could say the First Testament and the Second. The Old Testament is as important in your life as the New. Every verse counts. I want to look big picture over your Bible and see what we see. And here's one thing you'll find. We have one redemption story with Jesus at the center. It's all one story. You say, well, pastor, how can that be? That's exactly the question we should be asking. Listen to this description. Your Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. But there are many more amazing details that define natural explanation. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a cupbearer, and a priest all penned portions of your Bible. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, uh, giving spiritual and moral instruction, pronouncing judgment. You could say writing letters, all kinds of various communications. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, law, poetry, prophecy, letters, and proverbs. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. How is that possible? It never contradicts itself or its common theme. That's an excellent sum up of the glory of the Word of God that you carry when you come to church. His Word is a stunning miracle in itself. We have a God-breathed, inspired Word of God. And so when we preach, most of the time we preach week by week, verse by verse, 
up close in books. And we're looking at the immediate story. And we're making sure to do uh, great care to understand authorial intent. What was it that when this book was written, the author of this book intended to communicate to the original audience? This is just faithful uh, hermeneutics 101. How do we understand? How do we interpret? How do we read this book? This is the immediate story. And faithful handling of the word always has the text in its context. That's how we seek to understand it. We can't just walk in like some of these uh, false teachers and prosperity guys see a promise given to Abraham, lift it out of its context, and then throw it out to everybody. Hey, it's in the Bible. Therefore, David Koresh was a master of his Bible. And let me be clear, he made this book say all kinds of things it was never intended to say. So we are faithful to be Bereans, to study the text in its context, to understand its meaning, look close at the words, what did the author intend? What's happening in its, in its immediate circumstance? But there's always more. In school, we referred to this as the meta-narrative. It's the larger story. Sometimes it's important to step way back and say, okay, I see the flow here. I see this book. How does this book relate to this book? And how does this grouping of books hand us from this to this to this and point us to this? It's the story of redemption. And what you find when you go to the 60,000 foot level and you look down at your Bible is you find one story. Your Bible tells one story. It has one author and it has one hero. One hero. Every other hero in your Bible is preserved and handed down to point us to the hero Jesus Christ. Once you realize this, it's like you begin to look in these, these individual books and pages all together differently. You begin to ask the question, well, how do I see Jesus Christ glorified in this account? How do I see what Jesus has done as the culmination of all of this? How is this pointing to him? It's an amazing thing to experience. We have a Jesus-centered Bible, friends. It's a Jesus-centered Bible. It's not just a, a history book with random things thrown in and then bound up together. This is God's love letter, and it's to point to Jesus at every single page. I like how Brian Chappelle said it. He, he said the Bible is Christ-centered, not because Jesus is mentioned on every single page. If you try to find Jesus mentioned on every page, you're going to be very frustrated. But because every page in your Bible, in one way or another, points to the grace of God that is fully revealed and provided in Christ. In Christ. That's a great sum up of, of how to look at your Bible, how to study in, in your devotion time with God. How do we move to see Jesus. I like how C.H. Spurgeon said it. He said, on every page of Scripture, there's a view to Calvary. We can see the cross, and we should always find a way to run there every time the Word of God is preached. I told the men in Uganda, if Jesus is not preached in your sermon, your sermon is not Christian. 
if it doesn't point us to Christ and our need for him and his sufficiency in all that we lack, it's not a Christian sermon. It may be inspiring. It may help you be a good person, a moral dude, an upright, upstanding citizen of the United States, but it is not a Christian sermon if it doesn't leave us in desperate need for a Savior and a Savior who is all-sufficient to meet us there. And so we move from from shadow to reality. If you've ever done a a reading through your Bible from the Old Testament into the New Testament, you kind of feel this. I remember when I was with the men down there in Uganda, we were in a tent outside, and and I I stood in the shade of the tent, which was wonderful, by the way, because it was warm. We had a nice breeze moving through. So I'm in the shade of the tent, and I'm like, men, this is like the Old Testament here. We're in the shadow We see glory, we see truth, we see all kinds of things, but until we walk into the pages of the New Testament to see the fullness of the reality, we can't really understand all that's taking place here. And so we move as we walk through the scriptures toward the cross, we move from shadow to reality. I like how Augustine said it in 400 AD. He said the New Testament is in the old concealed. It's in here, the grace of God, the messianic anticipation, his promises that point to Christ. They're all, it's all here, but it's concealed. It's in the shadows. And then he said, the old is in the new, but revealed. It's revealed. So if we were walking in the dark and we had a flashlight with dead batteries, and we could try to see, but it, we can't really see all that there is to see. But, but when we come in contact with the cross, we have life and light. And all of a sudden, we look back. And so my journey this morning is to basically say, come with me. Let's use the flashlight of the gospel, the fullness of Christ, and let's shine a light on some of these things and ask what we see. What do we see? What do we notice? Jesus said this, for example, in John 5. This is mind-blowing. He said, if, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Whoa. Okay. Now, that should land big time in our lives as we're in the pages of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch was pinned by Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament, God wrote through Moses. And Jesus said, that, it's all about me. In his own words. So Jesus takes this spotlight of his own life and he turns it on to the Pentateuch in itself and says, that's all about me. Everything that you read there. And then he adds, If you didn't believe Moses, how are you going to believe what I say? The hardness of heart was in view in the day of Moses, and there was hardness of heart in view when Jesus himself spoke. Can you imagine this? Jesus is preaching, and people rail against what he's saying. Jesus himself. Now, how did Jesus share the gospel? How was it that Jesus shared the good news of the gospel? Well, we get a glimpse of this. I won't take time to tell the whole story, uh, but I'm sure 
If you've been in the New Testament, you've been familiar with this. And at some point in our journey through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to get here. Remember the road to Emmaus? The two men? They're just so deflated. Oh, it's been such a terrible week. And Jesus comes up, his risen, glorified Jesus, but concealed from their view. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, what's up? And they're like, what's wrong with you? How come you're all smiley? Don't you know what happened? And he's like, well, tell me. Where have you been? Jesus. We pinned our hopes on him. He was killed. Now his grave is empty. We don't know. We're out of here. They're just depressed and discouraged. What did Jesus do? Beginning with Moses. See where he starts? Beginning with Moses. That's Genesis, friends. And all of the prophets, that's the Old Testament. That's the span, the sum up of your Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened their eyes to see that the stories they knew so well were actually all about him. And they... They listen, and they listen, and they're like, hey, no, no, let's, let's have dinner. Stay. Don't leave. And all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. He disappears from their sight. Jesus sharing the gospel from all of Scripture. So uh, there are actual denominations who have jettisoned the entire Old Testament. They don't even believe it should be studied. How in the world do you understand the book of Hebrews? If you have no Old Testament, how do you understand Jesus' teaching who's constantly drawing from the Old Testament to teach and preach? And so we want to be a church increasingly that delights in all of Scripture. That's why we preach and teach from all of the books of the Bible. That's what I kept telling these guys. Be planted. Have one foot firmly placed in the Old Testament and another foot placed firmly in the New and preach the Word the whole counsel of God. So let's give this a go. I've got 20. 20 glimpses of Christ in your Bible, largely from the Old Testament. And I, I, on the handout, I have, there's way more. So you'll see some of these show up in the handout, but there's many, many more. This is how I'm going to phrase them. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater, okay? So this is for you note-taking people. This is where you can just stop. Put down your pen. Don't even try. Okay, it's going to be tough. Jesus is greater than all of creation because all things have been created through him and they exist, as Colossians 1 tells us, they exist for him, for his glory. He is the one through whom the Father chose to create. He's the word. He is, he is the one that spoke and it was. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created all that is. It exists for him. And it came into being through him. So, is the potter greater than the clay? Amen. He is. He is. He has rights over all. He is Lord. The second glimpse here, as we're moving through the book of Genesis, I want you to kind of try to say, okay, where, what book are we in as we see these things? Genesis chapter 2 and 3 here. Jesus is the second and greater Adam. He's the greater Adam who resisted temptation. 
and obeyed God's commands, passing the test and imputing his obedience, his righteousness to us, to us, the rebels, the lawbreakers, the sinners. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, but in Christ, through faith, for those who believe, they are made to live. He is greater than Adam. He is the second Adam. He passed the temptation. We saw that up close. Remember Luke chapter 4. He was led by the Spirit to be tested and tempted by Satan himself. And this time, Jesus obeyed where Adam failed. And the story radically changed for us right there. We're still in Genesis now. A very fateful chapter for us. Genesis 3. This is where it all went wrong. In Adam all die. This is where we collectively find our story uh, take a tragic turn. We're sinners, rebels, lawbreakers. But the promise is even in the midst of the curse, here is a promise spoken in Genesis 3.15. As the promised seed of the woman, Jesus is greater than the serpent. You might add, and the sin because he crushed the serpent's head and brought life through his victory. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, having triumphed over them in him. Sure, his heel was bruised on the cross. He died a painful, bloody death to take and satisfy the wrath of God that was against me and against you such that all who by faith trust Jesus' payment can be forgiven by God. The justice of God is upheld, glorified, and so is the love, grace, and mercy of God. All of this on the cross, all of this promised in Genesis 3, Jesus on display. Now we go to the first sinners who were born Cain and Abel, you remember this? Children of the fall conceived in sin because Adam and Eve were under the curse. They were sinners, and they have two boys, Cain and Abel. Jesus is the greater Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out not for condemnation. That's what the blood of Abel cried out for, right? The blood is, it, God speaks to Cain, the, your bro- brother's blood is crying out to me for your condemnation. The murder took place. Jesus' blood cries out for what? Oh, not for our condemnation, but for our forgiveness. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the, oh, the writer of Hebrews, he did this, Right? He was shining the flashlight. And he's saying, the blood of Abel, that speaks a word. The blood of Christ speaks a better word. Jesus is greater than Abel. Hmm. Jesus is greater than Isaac. Now, I'm jumping forward. There's loads of glimpses to find all throughout. In fact, one of the pastors was just brilliant. I love what he did when he presented his 15-minute sermon. He said, uh, I want to present today on Abraham and Sarah, and I want to show how Abraham treated his wife, 
And then I want to show how Christ treats his bride. Oh, I was like, I've never thought of that, but that's brilliant. Abraham lied and said his wife was his sister twice. He put her life in jeopardy out of selfishness and fear. And Jesus laid his life down for his bride to buy her back from her sin and bring her into his kingdom. What an awesome thing. I love seeing these pastors catch this and get excited about pointing to Christ. We, we talked about it like you build a bridge from the Old Testament to the New. Build a bridge to Jesus. Show how he is on display. So how is he greater than Isaac? Well, Jesus as the only son, the promised one, was not just offered up by his father on a mount, the exact same mount, by the way, but was actually sacrificed, shedding his blood for us and dying as the perfect sacrifice in our place. What you read when you read the gospel of Jesus Christ is that all that God set forward in the command to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, go to the mountain that I have shown you, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. You understand why? And then, as the knife is in the air, as you see here, the angel comes, stops him, and he turns and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And the message of Genesis 22 is on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Jesus fulfills that promise. Jesus is the greater Isaac. That whole story is about Jesus, about the gospel. It's awesome. Now, Jesus, beloved of the Father and betrayed by his brothers, is the greater Joseph. All of this sovereignly ordained story that was woven together, that God worked in, in sin and blood and uh, treachery and rejection and pain and, and hurt and loss, all of that story that he wrote for Joseph was to serve as a pointer to Jesus. Jesus provides true living bread to a famished world. Jesus also forgives those who betrayed him. And he uses his power to save them, you might add, rather than destroy them. Joseph, remember his brothers? The treachery, the betrayal. I'm just pulling from memory here. Wasn't it the same amount, 30 pieces of silver? Isn't that correct? The amount that Joseph received was the amount that Judas received. These things are not accidental. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Joseph prefigures that by not only inviting his betraying low-life brothers to come and live there, but he forgives them, and he gives them the best of the land. Wow. Jesus is greater than Joseph. Jesus is the greater manna, who is the true bread from heaven that nourishes and feeds his people forever. Jesus himself speaks of this in John chapter 6. 
He says, I'm the true bread. Your, your, your fathers, they ate of manna. Oh, by the way, how long did that last? One day. Except for on the Sabbath, it lasted two. And then it went away. Jesus is the bread that nourishes his people forever. In Psalm 23, give us this day our daily bread. What are we really saying? Give me Jesus today, O Lord. He is more than sufficient to meet everything I need. Bring him in fullness in my life today. I look to him, depend upon him, cling to him. He is my bread, my hope alone in this life and the next. Are you seeing this? Is this, is this amazing? Are you, are you feeling the flashlight land in these stories and open your eyes to these things? Jesus is the greater Sabbath since he is the only one through whom we enter into true Sabbath rest, not just for one day out of seven, but for every day from now through all eternity. All of the rest, the whole point of Sabbath was what? Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Sabbath. Come. You're trying to be good enough on yourself. You're trying to do good things. You're trying to carry this burden of your own sins. No, come. This law, you can't keep it. You need me. He says, come. Lay your burdens down. I'll give you rest. For my yoke, my teaching, my gospel is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is the whole point of Sabbath rest. He always was. It's not new. This is planned of old. The story written by God. He's the greater high priest who not only presented an offering, but who offered himself as the offering for us and lives now interceding on our behalf. All of the focus on the high priest, his function, the mediator between God and man, his work to present the sacrifice acceptable to God, all of the uncertainty, will it be accepted or will we stand condemned? What happens? The priest himself, the high priest, Jesus says, this time, I'm the sacrifice. And he lays himself down on the altar to take upon himself our sins and pay them in full. Jesus is greater than the snake, I like to say, on the stake. He's greater than the snake raised up on the stake. Now, we know John 3.16, right? We know that verse. You should go back this afternoon and read the two verses before it because John takes the flashlight and says, watch this, and he turns the flashlight on. Just before John 3.16, he points to this experience. Because of the victory of Jesus that he accomplished when he was raised up on the cross, we are given life and healing from the serpent's fatal bite. And all who look to him in faith, this is the reality. We've all been bitten by the serpent. We are all sinners. We all fall short. What is our only hope? The one who was raised up. Why did the Lord do it like that back there? Because he planned, he ordained the cross as the way he would save sinners before let there be light ever occurred. Every single thing 
is ultimately pointing to him. The snake on a stake. Jesus is the greater city of refuge. Now, let me just pause. (laughs) We live in a day, a cultural time that changes our mindset. We see how this culture thing happens. When we hear city of refuge, all of a sudden we're starting to think politics, border security, crime, havens for people, right? All of this stuff. I'm talking the city of refuge. It's in the Old Testament, and this is how it worked. If you were someone who killed someone on accident, uh, the family had the right to rise up and take your life. But if you fled to a city of refuge, you could live in safe haven there as a manslayer until the high priest died. And when the high priest died, you were a free man. Isn't that amazing? You fled to find refuge until the high priest experienced death. And when that happened, you were set free. Do you see these things? All of this purpose, the wisdom of God. He sets up cities of refuge to point us to our city of refuge, who is Christ, to whom sinners flee to find help, hope, and forgiveness, even though they are guilty. And we are. We're guilty of cosmic treason. We have a refuge from the wrath of God. And it's only in Jesus, our city of refuge. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Now we're moving in. Uh, You see how we're kind of progressing through the Old Testament here? The book of Joshua. He is the greater Joshua who came not only to lead God's people into the land of promise, Uh, to receive their long-promised rest, but single-handedly defeated, I would say, uh, but to single-handedly defeat, yeah, there we go, their greatest foes, sin, Satan, and death. We don't just have a warrior king. We have the warrior king who did all the work on our behalf. Like, we're going to take on sin on our own? Really? We're going to take on Satan Which one of us can win over death? We don't stand a chance. We cannot do this. I told the story of David and Goliath, and I asked, how would we tell this in a a, a moral way? Well, be like David. Have faith. Take those stones. You can slay any giant you want, right? You can do it. You're David. And then I told it a gospel way. I told about David taking those stones and slaying the giant. And I said, who are we, friends? Who are we? We are the cowards. The cowards hiding in the army of Israel, unable to even imagine taking on that giant on our own. How could we ever take on sin, death, or Satan? Who is Jesus? He is David, who comes in an unexpected way, And he takes down sin, death, and Satan single-handedly. And he chops off the head. And he stands in victory and he says, come on, come on, follow me. Only in Christ is there hope for victory over our greatest foe. You see what we're doing? We're, We're looking back and asking the question, what do we see here? Where do we see him? Where do we see us? 
Jesus is the greater judge in the book of Judges, who himself is truly righteous. He judges perfectly and eternally. He is, by the way, judge, jury, and executioner, we read in the book of Revelation. He is also a savior, though, who never fails to defend and protect his people when they repent and turn from their sins back to him. Isn't that amazing? The book of Judges points us to Jesus, the perfect judge. The book of Ruth, Jesus is the greater Boaz. Now, we journeyed through the book of Ruth together not long ago, and we saw this happen. He is the greater Boaz, serving as the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who will redeem a bride for himself at his own cost to share in his wealth and take her to himself and live happily ever after. I like a story that ends with happily ever after because the story of reality, your future in Christ, that's how that one goes. Happily ever after. Jesus is greater than King Solomon since he absolutely is unrivaled in wisdom, wealth, power, and prestige. No one comes close. Monarchs from around the world would visit Jerusalem during Solomon's reign, and they would pay him homage. But Jesus said, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who was he referring to? Himself. Himself. Rightfully so. Jesus is the greater Job. Now we're in the book of Job. He's the greater Job because he suffered in spite of his absolute righteousness, something Job could not say. Yet in this, like Job, he never sinned against his father. Jesus was raised off the ash heap of our shame, as it were. And he intercedes and saves those who formerly opposed him. This is our Savior who loves us. He loves us in spite of what we bring. Jesus is greater, the greater bridegroom. Now we're in Song of Solomon. It's a dangerous book if you're young. It's a glorious book. It counts. Someday I'm going to preach it here. I've had a few people say, can you wait till I'm dead to <laughs> preach that one? Right? It's coming. Someday we're going to do that book every verse because it's good and right and true and we need it to be complete to worship rightly. In that book, we will find that, in fact, Jesus is the greater bridegroom who delights in and showers his bride with steadfast love. He brings his beloved to dine at his banquet table. He satisfies her with his love. So many references to this. The wedding feast of the Lamb. There's a song I love. I love it when they play this at weddings, but it makes me cry every time because I see the bride She's standing at the aisle, and I always get to stand next to the groom. Remember this? We got this recently. I love weddings. Why? Because they're about Jesus. They're about Jesus. Everything we celebrate in a wedding points to him. The groom stands prepared, and his bride dressed in white. She has made herself ready, and she comes, and they are joined together. Let no man separate. I will never leave you or forsake you. Who said that? Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah who didn't run from unworthy sinners like you and me, 
but was willingly cast into the storm of God's wrath, swallowed into the grave, and after three days, as he himself in his own words predicted, the sign of Jonah, after three days came forth, calling his people to repentance and forgiveness and life in his name. Jesus' name is greater than all other names. God has given him the name that is above every name. And it is the only name that salvation is found. It is in his name alone. In his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, we have a Jesus who is exalted and on high. We have an enemy who hates it. He hates, he detests the exaltation of Jesus, his triumph over him. We have a world that is unwelcome to the idea that Jesus is the exclusive Savior. And we proclaim him exactly as he is. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. It is not loving to say anything less. So join me day after day after day to point your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers to this hope alone. He is the name above all names. And here's the deal. Someday, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow and will acknowledge this reality. Those who rail against him now, they will bow. Those satanic forces who hate him, their knee will bend and they will acknowledge whether willingly or not, he will be revealed. He is coming. He is coming. Let us be found faithful in our witness, bold in our love, because when he comes, those who are not found in faith in him will experience the fires of eternal hell. I mean, if we just feel how significant this is, the, the stakes are high, friends. I'm going to close with this one. It's one of my favorite verses. I say that of too many verses, but I just, it's one of my favorite verses. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise of God. When you have Christ as Savior, you have everything that God promised through Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Isn't that spectacular? All the promises of God, they all come through the one man, the mediator, the savior, the high priest, the sacrifice, the lamb, the bread, and everything else that the entire Bible points him to be. They all come through him. And so I want to ask this, this question this morning. When you look at Jesus, does your heart leap for joy? When you sing, are you singing to a Savior? Are you just hearing the sound of your voice? Right? Are, are, you, are you rejoicing in the one who died for your sins and brought you to life? Friends, our work in the text should land us here always. Always. 
Who am I and great are you? Who am I and great are you? We live in a man-centered age. Make much of me is the call. And as Christians, we are to be Christ-centered people. Make much of him. Make much of him. So I want to ask the question, do you see him today? Do you see him? He is the hero of the story of history. He is to be the epicenter of your life, the delight of your soul, and your forever joy. Let's pray. Father, we give praise and thanks to you for the undeserved and overwhelming gift that you have given in Jesus Christ. Oh, forgive us when we fail to see him for all that he is. Oh, Lord, we are a small-minded people. We so often will focus on things that just don't matter. We live days without even a thought of you. I pray that in your love and your grace and your mercy, you would give us a greater joy in Jesus, our Savior, our hope alone in this life and the next. I pray that you would stir our affections for you such that we wouldn't just see you and say, oh, yeah, we see you, but but that we would see you and love you more. Lord, help us with this, to delight in you, to be overwhelmed by you, to treasure you above all else to cling to you in life and in death, to proclaim you without fear to the ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for the Ugandan pastors who so delighted in you as we journeyed together. I love their joy in your word that you are working. Oh, Father, make them bold. Help them to know our love, our prayers for them as they go out all over, hundreds of miles in different directions in Uganda to preach faithfully your word. Give them courage not to shrink back from the gospel when they are opposed, but to lean in all the more with love and and grace and truth to hold out the word of life for those who are in Uganda. Oh, Lord, help us to do the same here. Make us bold in love, soft-hearted and resolute, standing firm with arms wide open. For your glory and for the joy of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.